Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, we have an author, Tristan Taramino, who's going to bring us information from her latest book, The Ultimate Guide to Kink, along with other information from her travels, from her books on sexual practices in the United States. Why are we talking about sexual practices in the United States? Because sex is a topic that has a peculiar place in our culture. It is both something that almost everyone engages in, it is a topic that almost everyone has a great interest in, and yet at the same time, it's a topic that is relegated to certain conversations and certain conversations only. In certain circumstances, it's a topic that is never discussed. And it is certainly a topic that is rarely always discussed. Whereas sex, sexual activity is essential to our being, because it's how we get here, at the same time, it is a topic which is left often in the far recesses of our consciousness and our homes. It is one and the same, the biggest selling topic in the world, and at the same time, the least openly discussed topic in our world, I think that's safe to say, including politics and money. Our author today, Tristan Taramino, is the author of seven books, including The Secrets of Great G-Spot Orgasms and Female Ejaculation, The Big Book of Sex Toys, The Anal Sex Position Guide, Opening Up, A Guide to Creating and Sustaining Open Relationships, True Lust, Adventures in Sex, Porn, and Perversion, Down and Dirty Sex Secrets, and two editions of The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women. She's the editor of 25 anthologies, including The Ultimate Guide to Kink, which is our topic today. She was the founding editor of the Lambda Literary Award-winning series Best Lesbian Erotica. Her books have sold over 500,000 copies and have been translated into many languages. Tristan has written for a multitude of publications, from the Yale Journal of Law and Feminism to Penthouse Magazine, Tristan has served as editor of the feminist sex magazine On Our Backs. For nine and a half years, she wrote a bi-weekly column in New York City's Village Voice, and she, which appeared alongside Dan Savage's column, Savage Love. She has been awarded two sex-positive journalism awards, and she's written on an advice column for Hustler's Taboo magazine since 1999. In addition... Tristan runs her own adult film production company and is currently an exclusive director for Vivid Entertainment. She has directed and produced 24 adult films, including a multi-award-winning film uh, based on her book, The Ultimate Guide uh, for Sex Education for Women. She's gone on and on. She has won many awards. Her documentary-style series, Chemistry, has won several feminist porn awards, and she was the first woman ever to win an AVN award 
for Best Gonzo Movie for Chemistry, Volume 1. Her series, Rough Sex, which depicts real women's fantasies of bondage and sadomasochism, won the 2011 Feminist Porn Award for Hottest Kink Movie. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Tristan. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Well, the topic, uh, the subtopic, I would say, perhaps, of, of today's interview is your latest book, The Ultimate Guide to Kink. Let's start out. Tell us, what is kink? Well, when I use the word kink, I think of it as a kind of umbrella term for a whole bunch of erotic practices that fall outside of conventional sex. So that could be erotic role-playing, fantasy, dominance, submission, bondage, sadomasochism, sensation play, all sorts of things that, that we don't always associate with so-called conventional sex. And it's been at least 50 years since the Kinsey Report. Now, the Kinsey Report, for those of you who may have forgotten, is, was the most comprehensive research that has ever been done on the sexual practices of, the, of us here in the United States. Tristan, it's been at least 50 years since Dr. Kinsey uh, wrote his books on this topic. How do you know what present, quote, normal sex practices are in order to know what is outside of those practices? Well, I think that there is a kind of agreed-upon idea of that our society puts out there as what is conventional sex. And usually it, it falls to basically heterosexual intercourse. Um, and things that fall outside of that are considered non-normative or alternative or on the fringe. You know, depends on what language you use. But certainly I think that there's a kind of a, a script and that you know, that Americans consider to be quote-unquote normal sex. And this is the, a script that, what, is portrayed in the movies? Or how do we get this information across? I mean, I'm wondering here how we know what people are really doing nowadays because the Internet, as you know, is showing information to people in all parts of the world and actually to all age groups, unless we, we block our children from watching this stuff, they're showing information that hitherto would have been impossible for people to see. Isn't that correct? Yeah, it's actually quite amazing, the shift. You know, back even just 10 or 15 years ago, when young people went looking for sexually explicit material, usually they had to really work at finding it, you know, finding their parents' stash of dirty magazines or or somehow, you know, digging up something that had explicit imagery. And now it's true that young people can go online and with one search on Google find very explicit material. So it's it's definitely shifted the way that teens are growing up with sexual material. It's just not as hard to come by as it was when, you know, I was in junior high or high school. I, I, I'm wondering, I guess you can tell by my question, 
whether what we used to consider to be normal, quote, or traditional sexual activity really is still normal or traditional, or whether this exposure of so many different sexual practices that human beings behave in has perhaps opened up the field, so to speak, or has allowed people to be uh, say more uh, experimental or to try things, and so that the what's normal has it has it broadened, or are we still in the same place we've always been? Yeah, I mean, I kind of think the answer is yes and no. Um, in the one sense, I, I do agree that things that were once taboo twenty five years ago are no longer taboo, and what we consider to be kind of sexually appropriate behavior shifts and changes as the culture evolves and as things shift and change. But I do still think that there's a pretty strong argument to be made that in the media and in our children's sex education, there still is a sense of this one kind of sex that people should be having and everything else being not quite as normalized. I see. So kink is that which is outside of what we sort of feel or think is what most people do. Right, although lots and lots of people practice kink. We just, um, I think we just are still clinging to the idea that everyone is having, you know, missionary position intercourse at home, and that's obviously not true. And why do you use the word kink? Doesn't that put sort of a negative value on it by by using such a word? It's sort of like you're, you're, you're kinky, you know. It's sort of like kinky means to have, what, a little uh, abrasion or uh, some kind of a crimp in a straight line, right? Well, I like the word kinky, actually, and I think it's, it's a lot um, more inclusive and a little sexier than, than the moniker BDSM, which is really what a lot of kinky people use to describe what they do. And BDSM, let me just define it for you. Um, the B and the D stand for bondage and discipline. The D and the S in the middle, dominance and submission. And the S and the M at the end, sadism and masochism. So BDSM feels like, I mean, it's it's both an acronym and an umbrella term, but it also doesn't feel very sexy or fun. <laughs> yeah, but BDSM. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it. So I like kink because it feels a little more playful, and also because I think that there are people out there who are having kinky sex who don't necessarily identify with the term BDSM at all. I'm going to back up a little bit now. Okay. So you've told us what kink is. It's uh, it's out of it's out of what the usual is, and we're going to get on to some dis- your discussion of some of these uh, quote kinky practices. How did you get into this field personally? Oh, okay. We have to take it way back. We're I going mean, to take I've it been... way back. How'd you get? You sound like a regular person. How oh. you, you, <laughs> you speak like a normal person. How did you get into this far out stuff? Well, I you know as someone who came of age sexually in the in the very early 90s. I think that I was exposed to a lot of different sexual experiences and for me in, in college or before? Yeah, in college. And by the way, you were Phi Beta Kappa from Wesleyan <laughs> University, weren't you? 
Yeah, so I wasn't so distracted by sex that I couldn't also study. Um, <laughs> but well said. Um, but for me, kink is a way to really explore sex on a deeper level, to really explore all these different kinds of activities, and, and especially for me to explore dominance and submission in an erotic context is very exciting and very charged for me. Okay, you used two words here, dominance of submission. Talk talk to us now about your early uh, understanding and your early introduction to bondage and uh, dominance of submission and, and how you got interested in educating the public about that. So dominance and submission is basically exploring a power dynamic in a sexual context where... The dominant is the one who is in charge, calling the shots, kind of running the show. And the submissive is following the dominant's lead and also often having things done to them by the dominant. Um, but before all of this happens, the, the people who are involved sit down and say, okay, what are the ground rules here? Um, what, are ev- what are everyone's limits? What kinds of things are we going to do? What kinds of things are we definitely not going to do? So everyone talks about it beforehand. And consent is really critical. And, and so you're able to then, once you've made this agreement, to, to play with these ideas of, of the submissive surrendering or being taken and the dominant doing the taking and being in control and and um, having their way with the submissive, all of those power dynamics can be explored, and it feels comfortable and safe for people because beforehand they've talked it all out. They've set their limits of how far this is going to go as a way of creating, that's a way of creating safety? Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. And do the roles get reversed, or does one person typically always take the power position and one person typically always take the the submissive position? You know, it depends. There are people who feel strongly identified with one role or the other. There are other people who like to take both roles, and so depending on what the circumstances are, um, they'll take one or the other. And then there's people within one session who will take both roles, Um, and that's called being a switch. And when this kind of power playing goes on back and forth, is it, is it particularly, you know, tell us more about it. I mean, is it behavioral? Is it, is it verbal? Do people right. actually, like, go in the other room and get me a pair of slippers? Or right. is it more like, uh, <laughs> I want you to do certain things to me sexually, or all of the above? Yeah, it's, it's really all of the above. So the dominance, if you think about dominance, dominance can be physical. It can be, I'm going to tie you down. And, um, and so my dominance is represented in bondage. I'm going to put you in bondage, and, and you're at my mercy, right? Okay. Or it could be emotional and psychological. I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to follow my instructions. And if you don't follow my instructions, there could be consequences, like a spanking or some other, you know, fun activity. You know, usually punishment is actually fun in these cases. Um, or it could be a combination of both. So the dominance really can take on all these different flavors depending on what 
people are into, because there are some people who are into psychological dominance, um, being told what to do, being made to do things in, in, a, in a consensual context. And others are into a physical manifestation of that, whether it's, um, you know, having, being blindfolded by their dominant so that they can't see or having some other kind of sensory deprivation, whether they're being tied up. You know, any number of kind of physical activities can also represent this power dynamic between people. And underlying this dynamic that's going back and forth between the two people all the time if I understand you correctly, is a sense of sexual excitation that's coming from the power dynamic. Yes. Yes. So the power dynamic is eroticized. It's part of what turns people on. Um, I mean, that's, that's why people do kink, because it turns them on and it makes them feel good. Um, if it doesn't turn you on, you're doing it wrong. Um, so, yeah, so for some people, the excitement of sex really comes with, um, with playing one of these roles. And in this particular one that you're talking about, the, the dominant and submission role, is this something that goes on that people decide that they're going to do this during their sexual play, say for the afternoon or the evening or whenever they make love? Or is this something that goes on, say, for days or weeks? I mean, how to give us some parameters. How does it uh, happen? Yeah, I think most people, it's, it's finite. So they say, you know, tonight we're going to play, you know, mistress and sex slave, and we're going to have this session, or some people would call it a scene, where, um, where we're going to play out this fantasy. And then when it's done, we go back to being, you know... Our regular selves. Yeah, John and Mary, whoever they are. Um, and, but for some people, those scenes could extend over a weekend. They could go away to, a, to an event, or they could go... Um, they could travel, and, and maybe that dynamic stays in place for, for a few days. Um, it's, it's quite hard to sustain a, a role play for that long, um, but some people absolutely do it. Okay, so, and I, I appreciate that you called it a role play, because that's really what's going on here, isn't it? It's a kind of theater, it's a kind of theater in, in vivo that's going on, <laughs> play acting, if you will. Yes, I, I love the idea. It is, it's like erotic theater, precisely, because, um, like I said, when someone, when someone takes a dominant role and says, okay, you're going to do this stuff whether you like it or not, mm -hmm. that's actually... Um, that's actually just sort of a line. It's kind of a script because, in fact, we know the submissive likes what they're about to be told that they have to do because all, everything's been negotiated beforehand. So you have to sort of, you have to lay out what you want and what you need, and then you have to suspend disbelief and pretend you're being made to do things that you don't want to or you're being taken um, or or forced to do something when the force isn't real it's actually consensual and pre-planned the submissive is really giving the dominant the power to be dominant by being submissive isn't isn't that right yes and it, but in fact the submissive is is quite often the one calling the shot exactly the submissive will lay out i want to be spanked i want to be i want to be hit with this paddle but not with this paddle i like this one because it's softer or or whatever you know so the submissive really gets to lay out their menu of of what they want and then let go 
Okay. And just let it happen. So you just uh, led us into another uh, topic here of kink and role-playing, which is being spanked. Talk to us about spanking. What's exciting about spanking? Why do people do spanking? And who does spanking? Yeah, so spanking, um, it's funny because I think people associate spanking often with childhood or with punishment. But, um, but for a lot of people, spanking can be quite intimate and, and sweet and gentle. I, I think the other thing that people have to realize and they often misunderstand about kinky sex is they associate it with pain. And, of course, we associate pain with discomfort. So who wants to be uncomfortable or, or experience pain during sex? The truth is that once we're turned on, once we're aroused, our pain tolerance, first of all, shifts because we have all these natural happy chemicals being released into our bloodstream. And, and so what looks like pain from an outsider's perspective actually feels quite good. It's actually just a very intense sensation that doesn't feel the same as if you ran into a wall accidentally if you were, like, walking in a building. That, that hurts because you weren't expecting it and because it was a totally different context. But when you're experiencing arousal, actually some of these sensations that we normally think of as painful become quite pleasurable for people. And, of course, everyone's wired differently and has a different level of pain tolerance and experiences these sensations differently. So for some, it's just about the physical sensation. They like being struck. They like that feeling of a thud against them. For others, spanking might be part of the role play. The role play may be that you're a naughty schoolgirl and you're getting spanked with a ruler by the nuns who've punished you for speaking up in class. So the spanking actually may be a way to explore, again, a kind of dynamic or a role play where spanking then symbolizes someone's power over you or your, your misbehavior that you have to be punished for. So if I understand you, what you're saying is that the exact same amount of spank force with the exact same paddle can feel very different if the principal does it to you for being bad in school or if your love partner does it to you in bed because it's prearranged. Exactly. It's two very, very different contexts. And again, you're not, you know, presumably you're not super turned on and excited at school. <laughs> um, but in this context of being with your partner, you are. And again, the endorphins are pumping through your bloodstream. And we have all of these natural opiates which are being released. And so what was once painful in a different situation becomes quite pleasurable for people. And I suppose there's a certain amount of excitation that comes from the blood flow being sent to the particular area that just got spanked just on a well, physiological basis. If you're, basis, if you're huh? spanking the butt, um, then yes, there's a lot more blood flow rushing to the genitals and again, helping that sexual arousal process along. So dominance and submission are one of the, one of the big uh, role play, one of the big aspects of kink. And then with it, with the, with, is, is spanking. What are some of the other common, quote, kinky practices that you can tell us about? I think bondage is quite popular because I think bondage is a great way for people to explore these roles 
since it's so clear that the person who who has you know tied you up with it you know and again you don't need very elaborate equipment for any of this um, you can use scarves you can use the the tie to your you know robe at home you don't have to get you know million dollars worth of equipment to, to tie someone up and so or, but the ru- or rusty do- chains from your garage no either, no I rusty guess. chains no, no rusty that's uncomfortable chain. okay and no handcuffs actually i just want to put that out there um, oh. people see handcuffs all the time and they even sell them at adult stores but the truth is handcuffs are not good for bondage um they're metal and they can close around you and they can actually hurt so it's much better to get a pair of cuffs that were designed for bondage, or like I said, use scarves, use a soft terry cloth tie from a robe. Um, that's much safer for everyone. In bondage, are people really tied up? I mean, with real knots, or is this sort of just a symbolic of being tied up? It depends on the person. Yeah, there are some people who are, are tied quite loosely, so they could get out in case of an emergency or in case they wanted to you know, stop the session. Um, other people can do quite elaborate rope bondage um, that's, that is actually really strong and, and actually you can be tied down and, and not be able to free yourself. It's really about kind of what you've negotiated beforehand. But I think bondage is a, a common fantasy because it really is so clear that the person in charge is the one putting someone else in bondage, and the person in bondage really is physically at their mercy once they are tied up. And what are the two people like about this kind of power dynamic? Tell us. Well, I think bondage can feel exciting because it's a sense of almost automatic surrender. You almost have no choice once once you're tied down and you don't have your arms, uh, you know, free, and, and you can't um, get out of the, the situation very easily, it, it really imparts this sense of realism of, oh, my God, this person can do whatever they want to me. Now, of course, whatever they want has been predetermined in advance. <laughs> so it's not really whatever they want. It's whatever you want. But, um, but, it, but it's a great physical manifestation of, oh, my God, I'm, I'm now at this person's mercy. And for the people doing the bondage, the people doing the tying up, um, a sense of power and control in an erotic context, I can now have my way with you. You're, you're helpless. You've, you know, you've put all this trust in me that I've now tied you up and you can't get loose. You can't get free. And the person who is, who, who is being tied up, They've actually told the other person in advance what's allowable and what's not. As the person who is doing the tying, do they have some degrees of freedom to try to do, quote, their own thing? No, it really is all pre-negotiated. It really is. I mean, I think that's part of why, the, why you can let go. Um, because you know in advance, you've said, these are my limits. These are the things I like to do. These are the things I don't want to do. And so there's a sense of freedom there that you can totally surrender because you know nothing is going to happen that you don't want to happen. So there's a tremendous amount of trust between these two people. Absolutely, of course. I mean, that is a huge component of kink and of BDSM is, is really this level of trust and people who, 
who do it long term with, with their partners really develop a sense of trust to say, hey, we're going to try this thing out and I'm going to trust that you're not going to go too far or do anything that I don't want you to do or, and, and really respect my limits. And I think, you know, that sense of trust alone, the sense of sort of scariness or danger, that also really is erotic to people. Um, Some people like a sense of fear and danger with their sex. Yet at the same time, it's fear and danger within certain parameters of safety so that they know that ultimately nothing bad is really going to happen. Is that correct? Exactly. That's why it's a fantasy because you get to write the script and pick the players and or player and you really call the shots. Um, which is why I think people can go to these places and, and explore some of this exciting stuff. And some of it is taboo because they have talked about it beforehand and they know I, I'm going to be, if this is a scene about being tortured to give up information to a secret agent, I'm only going to be tortured to the point of where I want to be tortured and not beyond it. So I control the fantasy. I write the script. I'm the director and I'm also the actor in, in the play because you were talking about theater before. Yes. And it is quite theatrical in that way. You're listening to Tristan Taramino. She's the author of The Ultimate Guide to Kink, as well as six other books. She's given lectures all around the United States and Europe at major universities. She's been featured in over 200 publications. And today she's with us here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and we're pleased to have you here. The, um, you, you, you mentioned that, uh, that these, these sexual practices, again, right from the beginning, you know, are outside, quote, outside of the norm. Yet when we look at, at, at history books on sexuality, we see that people were doing these things 2,500 years ago in ancient China. There's, there's plenty of documentation of that. How did, this, how did kink get its dirty reputation? Right. How did kink get its dirty reputation? Well, I think that, you know, people fear what they don't know and what they don't understand. And so I think kink has gotten, again, a reputation of whips and chains and pain and um, suffering. I mean, I think it's all, it, it's all been entirely misunderstood because people don't understand what goes into what they see. They sort of see it out of context and think, oh, my God, those ropes, they look really tight. And that person, they look like they're in agony. This looks awful. But they don't understand how the scene has been created and the power that people have to, to create these fantasies. And that, in fact, all of this is really pleasurable for people. I think that there's still a, a, a real misunderstanding around this thing that we call pain. Um, one of the because critis- for, for one person's pain is another person's intense erotic sensation. As long as it's with two consenting adults. Of course. 
Am I correct in assuming that when you lecture, particularly at universities, but I imagine everywhere, that you warn people about using any kind of mind-altering substances, such as alcohol and so on, during this? Because that could, uh, you know... Oh, that, that God, could, yeah. Right? That could I release mean, the governor, and all of a sudden the deal you made is off because somebody drank too much, right? Yeah. I mean, in my experience within kink communities, really all around the world, um, drugs and alcohol are really frowned upon. Because the thing is, you've got to have your wits about you when you're doing this stuff. Because if you don't, you can do it wrong and you can hurt someone. So it's really important for people to have all of their faculties. And again, to, to just, you have to be quite present in these scenes and scenarios. I mean, I think another thing about kink is that there's no phoning it in. There's no checking out. There's no laying back and, you know, thinking about the queen or whatever the phrase is, right? You really are 100% present and engaged with your partner at all times. And so in order to be that present, of course, you can't be drinking or high or on drugs. Dominant submission, bondage, spanking, um, role-playing, but all in the safety of agreement, almost a scripted agreement is what I'm hearing from you, and that the community that engages in this frowns upon use of mind-altering substance of any kind in order to be present. I want to go to another one here, a chapter in your book, uh, The Ultimate Guide to Kink. You have a chapter of a romp on the wild side, erotic human-animal role-playing. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's a really taboo one. Um, So there are some people who, when they role-play, they don't want to role-play being people. They want to role-play being animals. And the most common animals within the kink community are uh, dogs, cats, and horses. Not porpoises? No porpoises? (laughs) No, I don't know why. I mean, like, there's been no great study on why it is that those are the Dogs, cats, and horses. Okay. Popular, but... um, Definitely no kangaroos. No, and I've been to Australia where you think maybe the kangaroo would be more popular among kinky people, but it's still dogs and cats and horses. Okay. Um, And so this is the idea that when you role play, you don't want to be a person. You want to be an animal. And, And so there are puppies. There are people who like to pretend that they're puppies, and they drink out of a bowl, and they get their ears scratched. And often, this kind of role play is not um, specifically sexual. It really is a way to sort of step outside your human self and let go of all the things that come with being human, like responsibilities and talking and interacting with people and having a job and being a grown-up and being able to lay on your back on dog bed and just be pet. So it's really sort of suspending all of all of these things that all the trappings that make us human so that we can just be an animal for a while. A way to be outside of ourself as a way yeah. to be perhaps inside of ourselves. It's a yeah. way to get in by being out by being outside. Is this connected in some way to the concept of of uh, naughty is sort of 
interesting and bad is good and evil is better that there's you know this kind of sexuality involved with doing something that's a little off well yeah i mean i think that there's this charge this idea that you could be something that's not you and in fact you can go farther you're not just going to be the cheerleader or the hitchhiker or the the madam at the brothel but you're going to be an animal who doesn't even speak who doesn't even use words, doesn't have language, you know, can pee on the carpet if they want. <laughs> I think that's a word that's okay, so we'll let you get away with that one. Okay, but be, thanks. Be careful. Um, you know, or just be fed treats. A horse who likes to be groomed and brushed and let out and given little sugar cubes and carrots. You know, they're, the, the piece in the book, which is written by an amazing educator, Lee Harrington, I think is, I mean, Lee is a spectacular writer and educator, and what, what struck me about that chapter of the book, since every chapter is written by a different person, is just how fun and playful he describes this activity. I mean, it really is a way for, for us to get back to this very playful sense of ourselves where we don't have to follow any of the rules of human conduct, we can, in fact, just just be a cat who likes to be, you know, who likes to purr and curl up against their owner. Here's a quote from Lee Harrington in the uh, chapter that, uh, that Tristan's telling us about in her book, um, The Ultimate Guide to Kink. The chapter, again, is a romp on the wild side, erotic human-animal role-playing. And, and the quote is, when we take away our human masks to become more animalistic, sometimes core parts of our identity come to the forefront. And that's, that's what it's about, isn't it? I mean, that really summarizes the whole thing. It's a way to get into ourselves by getting out of ourselves and being, exactly. a, being an animal. Exactly. And that may or may not be connected to our sexuality. Yeah, I think when it comes to that particular kink, it's often not sexual. Um, but it's often a way to sort of explore these other aspects of our of our psyche and ourselves. So, uh, you know, the more we're talking about this, the more it sounds to me like just doing things, in your words, outside of ourselves, sort of, you know, playing outside of the usual game, in and of itself is what you're educating us about, is what makes it either, you know, more interesting or more expansive to us as people, Correct. Yes, because I think that these kind of explorations and these kind of fantasies can be quite cathartic, and they can lead to a lot of sort of growth and, and personal change and evolution. Lots of people who practice kink and, and do it for long term, you know, create these scenarios and these scenes, and when they come out of them, they often reflect back and say, wow, I didn't know that I could be that much of a brat when I was a pony, or I didn't know that I liked to take charge that much when I played that dominatrix. You know, we're exploring these various facets of our own personalities that we don't necessarily tap into on a daily basis or, or in a regular way. And when we get to explore them through kinky sex, through role play, sometimes we come out the other side and say, wow, I didn't know that about myself. 
I didn't know I'd be such a good drill sergeant because, you know, during the day I'm a kindergarten teacher and I'm sweet and warm and I give out cookies. But sometimes I want to be mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and so much is written about, uh, you know, power players in Wall Street and so on enjoying being uh, submissive. Well, yes, the, the, the sort of um, very well-known story is that when you find out who goes to see professional dominatrixes, it's often the, the leaders of these Fortune 500 companies, these businessmen who make, you know, billion-dollar decisions by day and manage hundreds or thousands of workers underneath them who want to go and, and experience what it feels like to be someone else's sex slave, to be at the mercy of someone else who's in charge, calling the shots, telling them what to do, and they have no choice. Um, that, that's a very sort of typical scenario that, that where, where all day you're making decisions and you want to spend these couple hours having someone else make the decisions for you. I'm going to take a sort of a sidebar here and, and take us in a slightly different direction. You know, you've written seven books, and, and, and you've got 500,000 in print. It's all about erotica and pornography and sex. What about your folks? You have a mommy, you have a daddy, or you did. Uh, how do, you, do you talk to them about this material? And if so, tell me something about your conversations. Yeah, so um, my father passed away, unfortunately, uh, and I have, and my, but my mom is still alive. And my mom has known what I do and about my career for since the beginning. Um, I'm all of my relatives know. I mean, I use my real name, so anyone who went to grade school can look me up on Facebook and and find me. Um, so everyone knows. There's no one who doesn't know what I do for a living. You know, of course, there's the internet, and um, you know, I grew up with a mom who was who was a feminist, who was smart, who was open, and, and she, you know, she respects the work that I do. Where, and did, you, where did you grow I, up? I grew up in the suburbs on Long Island, in outside New York, of New York City. Okay. And I went to public school. I had a very unremarkable childhood. <laughs> I didn't have any um, amazing sex education. I had, you know, really limited abstinence-based, health classes in, in school, like most people in America. So I didn't grow up on a hippie commune or anything. And you weren't beaten or abused or a drug addict as a child? I was not, no. And so I can, I can have these conversations with my parents and with my, my relatives um, because, truthfully, you know, everyone wants to talk about sex. We're just told not to do it in polite company, not to do it in public. It's not, you know, dinner time conversation. I mean, there's all these myths around um, why we shouldn't talk about sex and why we shouldn't talk about it in public. And actually, being so out as I am about what I do for a living and that sex, you know, makes up my whole life, whether it's writing making movies, lecturing. It's really all about sex and relationships. And when people know that, they're actually dying to talk to me. I'm, I'm the most popular person at the family reunion. <laughs> Please trust me on this. Uh -huh. Because everyone has a question. 
Everyone has a story to tell me. Everyone has a little secret they want to put a little bug in my ear about. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not the black sheep. I'm quite the opposite. <laughs> uh huh. And were you already in the business when your dad was alive? Yes. And yes. Wh- and what was what was his reaction? And what, what did you tell me? What did your dad do for a living? My dad was a writer. Uh-huh. And my dad was gay. My parents split up when I was very young. When my dad came out as a gay man. Okay. And um. You know, I think my dad was somehow a little bit more conservative, though, than my mom, and a little still shy about talking about this stuff, uh-huh. but definitely really supportive. Uh-huh. I mean, supportive of whatever I wanted, you know, wanted to do. And your mom is, is straight, and she's, she was less conservative, perhaps, than your dad, or more open yes. to it. about this stuff, I think, Absolutely. Okay. Thank you for the personal note, because I'm sure, you know, I, I, I don't know if listeners or so want to hear about it, but I certainly wanted to get out in the open, you know, the, 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 who is this person who writes this stuff? You know, where did you, where did you come from and how does this come about? I mean, after all, you're, you know, you're a Phi Beta Kappa from a great uh, American university and, and this is your life work. So that tells us something in and of itself. And I think the important thing too is that I'm proud of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. I know it's not conventional, but... I really, I'm proud of the work that I do. And so when someone asks me, what do you do for a living? I'll tell them. And then if they want to engage me further, we can do it. And if that's all they want to know, then we move on to talking about the weather. That's fine, too. Okay. Let's talk some about piercing, because piercing has become perhaps, I don't know if I want to say in the mainstream, but it's certainly a lot closer. I mean, there's a lot more piercing going on than there was 10, 15, certainly than more than 20 years ago. What's piercing about from your perspective? Yeah, so so permanent body piercing really has mainstreamed. I mean, it's, it's really pretty common to see, you know, regular folks, soccer moms and Hollywood types and models with body piercings when we, we didn't see that 20 years ago at all. Um, and so I think that, that that's definitely become more accepted and, and people um, pierce all different parts of their bodies, as, as you know, and for all different reasons. Now, piercing in a kinky context is not permanent. Piercing is um, using these very, very tiny needles um, to puncture the skin, to create, again, a sensation, a deep, intense sensation, but they're not permanent piercings and they're not permanent marks of any kind. So you're talking here about a different kind of piercing than most of us are used to. Most of us are used to piercing, seeing we see someone on, that we know or in some social situation has pierced an ear or a nose or, you know, et cetera. People are actually, we all know, piercing. You can pierce your belly button. And yeah, you can pierce a lot of things. Uh, people are piercing, actually, their penises and their, and their labia. Yeah. But you're talking about... But that's about, a much bigger needle. <laughs> and you're talking about a different kind of piercing now, aren't you? Yes. So this is called play piercing or uh, temporary piercing piercing, and you use a much tinier needle, um, and people often pierce on, on fleshy parts of the body, so you don't want to pierce on a, where, there's no, where there's too thin of a skin. You want to pierce on fleshy parts. And essentially, again, it is like another kind of sensation um, where the needle goes through the skin. And again, you use sterile, one-time use needles. People are very, very safe about this. Uh, and there's not 
there's often not blood or, or a very tiny amount. This isn't like someone's jabbing you with, with scissors. It's a, the tiniest little needle. And it goes through the skin and creates this pretty intense sensation and, and again, helps release endorphins, which are these natural chemicals which often um, really lead to this kind of rush in your body. Wow. That's all I can say. Wow. Um, what about some of this chapter here called age role play? What is age role play? Yes. Yeah, so age role play is when people like to role play um, other people who are different than their own chronological age. And it's most popular when people play people younger than them. So this is people who want to role play that they are kids or teenagers um, in the community, they're often called littles, as in, like, young, instead of kids, because kids means children, and, of course, we only play with adults. We only play with, with consenting adults. But this is where adults want to kind of regress into a childlike state, and often, like we talked about with the other kinds of role play, it's a way to really explore a more innocent time in our lives where we weren't grown-ups, where we didn't have mortgages and bills and responsibilities, but we could color in our coloring books and run around and play in the dirt and make sandcastles on the beach and, and just be a kid, essentially. Once again, it's, it's, uh, it's theater. It's personal theater. as a, yeah. as a Almost a personal theater as a growth exercise to sort of get us away from... All the stuff that if we let into our minds while we're making love, it's gonna, we're not going to be making love. We're going to be playing in our minds with these uh, other things like paying the bills, taking care of the more, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think it's, again, I think age role play is quite taboo because, um, because people who do kink are, are so clear that they don't want to do this with children. They want to do it with consenting adults. But the idea that someone's role-playing a child and can, and can do so in an erotic context can really freak people out. Because it brings up all kinds of things about pedophilia and so about on. Pedophilia, about pedophilia, about childhood sexual abuse, about incest. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I so I it, think it's, it's, it's a really charged topic that people have a lot of feelings about. Uh-huh. But, the, but again, I think when we're talking about two grown adults who are consenting to play children, um, it, it's a totally different situation. From your perspective, Tristan, is there such a thing as a sexual addiction? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think the sex addiction movement, the sex addiction industry is really a sham. I, I believe that most of the people who are counseling People around sex addiction are making a lot of money off of people's sexual shame and guilt. Now, and, and often it's faith-based. So there's often this idea that you can find God and then you won't be, and then you won't have these sexual urges or desires. And it sort of sets up this false dichotomy of either you are religious and not sexual or you're sexual and you're you know, a hedon. I think that certainly people can take this stuff to the extreme. Anything can be compulsive. 
And there are certainly people who have compulsive sexual behavior. They're not having sex to feel good, to connect, to explore their inner psyche, to grow, to learn. Um, They're having sex to self-destruct. They're having sex instead of having relationships with people. They're having sex in compulsive ways. So I certainly think that there is unhealthy, compulsive sexual behavior. But this thing known as sex addiction, where when, when a, a celebrity is caught cheating on their wife, they can go to sex addiction rehab, I think is absolute crap. I think it is a, a made-up thing. Um, and and really does a disservice to people by shaming them around their sexual desires and sometimes their sexual behavior. I consider over-smoking, over-eating, over-drinking and drugging, over-gambling and over-spending controllable impulse disorders. That's my, my, my label for them, my nomenclature, controllable impulse disorders. Is there such a thing then within what you're talking about as over-sexing? Yes. I mean, first of all, people have very different libidos, and there are people with very high sex drives and people with lower sex drives. And so I think simply having a lot of sex does not make you a bad person or compulsive. But if you are having a lot of sex and you don't feel good about that sex, or you're having a lot of dangerous, unsafe sex that could put your life at risk, If you're having so much sex you can't hold down a job or maintain relationships, then you've got a problem. But a lot of sex to one person could be a little sex sex, to someone else. Yeah. It's like if you just love cheesecake but it hasn't overtaken your life, then I'm okay with you eating a lot of cheesecake. And if you love sex, then one of the questions I get asked is if a person loves sex and enjoys sex, why are all these kinky things necessary? I mean, why, why, why do you have to add all that? That's the, one of the questions I get very, you know, frequently. Why, why would you even want to do all these things when sex in and of itself is a barrel full of fun? Because everyone's wired differently. And I don't think they're necessary by any means. But I think the point is that for some people, this is what their sex life looks like. This is what turns them on. This is what gets them going. This is what really stokes the flame. And so it's not so much about trying to convert all people to be kinky, but just acknowledge that there are kinky people out there in the world, and their sexual desires and their fantasies and their practices with other consenting adults are okay. It's just, we're all wired differently, and we all have different turn-ons. And so what I think the important message here is, is, We've got to destigmatize these practices and rather look at them as items on a menu. You go to a restaurant and you like to order one thing or maybe two things, or maybe you eat something different every time. And someone else always sticks to one section of the menu, or maybe they like another section of the menu. But all of it has to be on the table as an option for people and not stigmatized because it falls outside of what people think other people should be doing. What one thing would you like our listeners to take away more than anything else, the ultimate that they could take away from your educational program today? I think that we're all, we're all okay. I think that people 
still feel too much shame and guilt and stigma around their own sexual desires. And if some of their sexual desires fall within the bounds of some of these topics that we've talked about or some of the things that are covered in my book, The Ultimate Guide to Kink, know that there are plenty of other people who share those desires and who share those fantasies. And you can find those people you can figure out what it is you like. You can learn how to do it really safely. You can find someone you trust to do it with. And you don't have to feel bad about your own sexual wants and needs and fantasies. Tristan Taramino, thank you so much for being on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics today and for educating us about various sexual practices, some of which we may not be familiar with or have heard. Her latest book, The Ultimate Guide to Kink, by Tristan Taramino. It's T-A-O-R-M-I-N-O. You can Google her, Tristan Taramino, The Ultimate Guide to Kink. I'm sure you're going to want to take a look at it. Tristan, thank you very much for being on our program. I look forward to having you on again with your next book. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this in such an intelligent and respectful way. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm.